Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Seth Kirshner. Seth Kirshner is a writer and researcher whose work has appeared in outlets like In These Times and Sojourners and Rethinking Schools, and he is the co-author with Scott Harding of a terrific new book called Counter-Recruitment and the campaign to demilitarize public schools, which he tells me is the first book to analyze the grassroots counter-recruitment movement, which has been around for more than 40 years. Seth Kirshner, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. That's incredible to me that nobody has written a book. Certainly people have written endless blog posts uh, about counter-recruitment, which has been around for forever. Right. Well, there was, uh, I should just add that there was a very good sort of activist guidebook that was a how-to guide on how to get involved with counter-recruitment, and that came out in 2007. It was uh, Amy Allison, David Solnit from Seven Stories Press. It's very good, but uh, it didn't really analyze the movement and didn't look at the aspects of it that Scott and I were, were examining. So, so that's why I say it's really the first to examine this in depth. Counter-recruitment is a familiar term to me. It's a familiar movement. Uh, I've been in touch with people doing it and done it uh, for many years, but uh, I I think to many people it's uh, a confusing phrase, don't even know what it means, Uh, and the idea that U.S. schools are militarized uh, may be confusing. So maybe we should start there with what does it mean to say that, that schools in the United States need to be demilitarized? Well, yeah, I think we should just step back a bit and uh, and start with the state of school militarism. And that's that's a bit of jargon, I, I realize, but by saying school militarism, I'm just referring to the military's integration with, uh, with public schools especially, but uh, the educational system, K through 12 especially. Scott and I don't look at uh, ROTC programs at universities. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be helpful to start with um, the K-12 through educational system, how that's become pretty well integrated with the military, because uh, there is a, a fair bit of uh, lack of awareness about this. Um, how has it become integrated with the military? Well, and, and as soon as the draft ended in 73, um, you, you, would, you began to see uh, several, three different types of... Uh, this military integration take hold in, in high schools. You began to see recruiters uh, gain, gain access to schools to talk with youth, um, and that varied wildly between schools. So in some cases, recruiters would be there a lot. In other cases, they would not. But you would have a recruiter setting up a table and, and, uh, and having conversations with students. And then you also have an expansion of the junior ROTC program. Uh, uh, and then along with that, you have the increase in military testing programs, so that by the mid-70s, you have about 1.3 million high school students being tested uh, across the country um, doing the armed, for, uh, armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. So you have recruiters talking to students in schools, these uh, military training programs, junior ROTC, and then the ASVAB or the, the testing program. And all of that expanded in the 70s because the the military needed to have uh, access to uh, manpower. And 
youth and advertising, marketing, school access began to uh, be the priority. How, how much um, are we taxpayers uh, forking over for these uh, efforts? Well, just to give an example, I mean, the junior ROTC program, uh, which is in around 3,500 high schools, that cost uh, the most recent figures that I have, uh, 2009, so this needs to be updated, but it costs over $320 million for this program, which uh, the military uh, in public and to schools and to parents military claims this is not a recruiting program this is a citizenship training program got yeah. that <laughs> citizenship um, training so if you don't get trained to follow orders and shoot stuff you're not a good citizen right so it, it's it's absurd on its face but uh nevertheless people continue to believe this um and uh it's it's quite this is a program that if you didn't have it in your high school you don't, it would almost not even believe that it could exist right that you would have students dressing up in uniforms, marching around campus. Uh, in some programs, not every program, but in some, you, ha- you do have the rifle training. Uh, they use air guns. Um, so all this is happening, again, because it's citizenship education. Um, but there have been a number of studies that, that are done that show that there's a direct, there, there is this, uh, this link between uh, students' participation in JROTC and their decision to enlist in the military. That's pretty strong. The connection between the other things the military claims happen in uh, in JROTC, like uh, reducing the dropout rates or increasing academic achievement, the evidence for that is pretty slim, according to studies. So we so we have the military in the schools, we have the the, the training programs, ROTC in the schools, and we have these these tests. Who is who is working to counter these things, and how are they going about it? Well, you have, uh, you have this uh, behemoth on the one side where you have all these resources, millions of dollars going into uh, uh, recruiting programs and marketing programs to make sure that uh, the roughly 200,000 new bodies enter the military every year. That's on one side. And the other side, you have a mostly volunteer band of grassroots, act- grassroots activists, parents, uh, a lot of veterans um, during the Iraq War years. There were a fair number of students who were involved in this work, and what they're trying to do is to blunt the impact of the military in high schools. And they do that in a number of ways. Um, if you've, if anyone's out there has heard of counter recruitment, uh, you might associate it with this very common form, which is kind of like consumer advocacy. Activists go into high schools, and the courts have established that they have a right to do that. They go into high schools, they bring literature, and they set up tables, kind of like a military recruiter does. And they share information about what the military is really like. They talk about uh, options that don't involve the military uh, for students who just need college funding, right? Um, And this is all made necessary because, uh, as a lot of the counter-recruiters told us, um, the high schools they're working in, have guidance counselors, but they're extremely overworked. And these guidance counselors, they might have, uh, they might have 700 students to be responsible for, right? And they have to then prioritize the ones who are going to go to college. So the students who aren't interested in college don't really get the guidance. So they don't know about other options out there. They don't know about 
uh, city year programs, which can give you a stipend and, and other kinds of benefits to do work uh, in urban areas. Um, they don't know about these other options. All they hear about, because the military is there every week, is you can get all these great scholarships if you, uh, uh, if you join up, right? And you can get all these benefits if you sign this contract. So they're there as a counter-presence um, to tell the other side of the recruiting, con- uh, the recruiting pitch. You have some great uh, stories in the book, uh, dialogue, conversations that uh, counter-recruiters, including veterans, have had with uh, potential recruits. Um, does, it, does it work, and what works best? Right, that's a great, that's a great question. So this is the most common form, the, the, the form of counter-recruitment I just described, which some people call truth in recruiting. It's the most common form because it's the easiest uh, lift, you could say. All you have to do is get some literature, uh, brochures and pamphlets, call some people at the school, and you can set up an appointment. And if you have a group of people, it's easier to do that. But uh, we know of you know, single individuals who go into schools and do this. So this is easy work, and you feel good afterwards, activists tell us. Uh, it's gratifying to have these conversations with youth, but you really have no idea what kind of impact you're having, particularly long-term. So it's. Uh, well, sometimes you do, right? Sometimes you have the immediate gratification of changing someone's mind and convincing someone to back out of the military, right? That's right. Yeah. So you sometimes uh, activists will tell us that they have had conversations with students who are on the fence or confused about something uh, a recruiter had told them, and they get some information, and that does then lead to them making a decision uh, to, you know, spend the extra time filling out a, a FAFSA form and getting some financial aid for college instead of doing what the military recruiter tells them to do. And then sometimes you have uh, youth who come back years later and they say, hey, uh, thanks for that conversation. It, it, uh, it changed my mind. Right? So there is that. Uh, that does happen. And plus, like you said, there's this intangible just sense of gratification that is important. Right? It keeps us going as activists. It keeps us going to to, uh, to feel good about what we're doing and, and to have these face-to-face interactions. Other activists told us that just going into schools and having these interactions with students uh, is a more concrete way of uh, doing something about war and militarism. Right? If you just are sending letters to legislators, you rarely get any kind of response. If you're doing a vigil, uh, maybe you'll get some people to honk their horn at you, but it can be a little bit isolating. So this work in the schools is, is gratifying in that sense. Yeah. Um, we're, we're speaking with uh, Seth Kirshner, whose book is Counter-Recruitment and the Campaign to Demilitarize Public Schools. Um, sorry, Seth, what, you were about to say something? Well, I was just going to add that there are other uh, activists who are in this work, and what they're actually trying to do is do something along policy lines, because you can get into schools all you want, but remember, these activists are volunteers, and the military has millions of dollars that they put into recruiting, and uh, in many cases, they can send recruiters on, to schools on a weekly basis. Counter-recruiters can't match that. So there really is no uh, equal access here in that sense. So what some counter-recruiters are trying to do is lobby school boards, talk to parents, uh, and get policies passed at the school district level sometimes the state level, that puts some regulations in place. 
were, for instance, in Santa Barbara, there was just a policy passed uh, that limits the number of times recruiters can visit. If nothing like that's in place, recruiters have carte blanche to come in as often as they want, and we know that they will because they have the resources to do that. And you've seen some significant successes, including a decrease in the number of students being given these these military tests, the ASVAB tests. Um, We had uh, Pat Elder on the program who works on this, uh, and it takes longer, of course, but there have been some, some legislative victories in terms of getting testing out of schools uh, that is uh, very deceptively presented to students as something other than a military recruitment exam. That's right, yes. Uh, And uh, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the high watermark for military testing in schools was the mid-70s, about 1.3 million nationwide. That's been cut in half over the years. And it's been cut in half because of sustained uh, pressure from activists. And uh, and this will surprise you. The, the other big big thing that cut that number down is uh, a campaign by a Republican congressman in, from Ohio in the 70s. He worked with the ACLU, and he really uh, did a number on the ASVAB and helped to rein it in and uh, uh, got those student privacy protections that Pat Elder has been working so effectively with. None of that would have happened if it hadn't been for this congressman from Ohio. And probably if it hadn't been for the general culture and mood of the country in the 70s when peace was more acceptable and war was less normal uh, and it was possible uh, to advance such causes, I, I assume. Uh, and I hope that uh, I hope that your book is part of reinvigorating this part of the the peace movement and the whole movement uh, is somehow reinvigorated, but it, it was a different world back then, was it not? Yes, it, it was, and that was something that really surprised us. It was one of the more interesting discoveries doing this historical research and finding out that we have uh, Republicans in Congress, but most notably you had uh, the Congressional Black Caucus and people like Ron Dellums of California uh, and... Uh, Perrin Mitchell from Maryland. These these congressmen were anti-militarists, and they were they were proud to say so. They spoke in Congress about uh, the J. Rotsi in particular. Perrin, this was one of Perrin Mitchell's uh, big issues, and he worked with the American Friends Service Committee in Maryland. Uh, so they have that happening in Congress, but in the in the mainstream churches, for example, uh, at Pennsylvania Council of Churches in 1977, I think, passed a resolution against Jay Rotsi. Who can imagine that happening today? I mean, the mainstream churches just don't really touch this kind of stuff today. Um, yeah. So, and so of course, they're all, they're all still officially on record de- demanding the total abolition of war from back in the 1920s. Uh, I mean, it, it just depends how long an institution has been around, uh, what it's favored, because the whole culture changes, it seems. Um, I, I, uh, I, I think you give some examples in your book of teachers and guidance counselors without any military prompting or connection or funding uh, guide people toward ROTC. Why don't you go into ROTC as an alternative to 
uh, physical education or why don't you look at the military uh, as sort of a normal accepted thing. There, there was an article on truthout.org a couple weeks back of uh, someone complaining that their kid's teacher in kindergarten had given them a, a worksheet where they pick which branch of the military they'd have the most fun in. And uh, I mean, the culture just does this voluntarily at this point, right? That's right, and it's it's uh, like that truth out piece points out. It's it's diffuse. It's not uh, not always uh, in a big, highly funded system. It just trickles down to the classroom level where you have teachers promoting this. Um, and uh, yeah, there is there is a, a quite a bit of support among educators for for uh, junior ROTC, junior ROTC. Um, they believe that it's. Uh, great for kids who maybe need to be brought in line, and it's uh, a good promoter of discipline and things like that. Uh, there's one study I saw that showed uh, that educators feel more uh, that uh, Jay Rotsi is more effective at doing these things than Jay Rotsi instructors themselves, which kind of is interesting, right? I mean, um, so that that needs to change. And one of the things that we have that Scott and I, uh, in our writing, have, have talked about is that there are ways to to deal with this. And, and counter-recruiters are strapped for time. They don't have as many resources uh, as the military, but uh, one of the things they could do to, to deal with the, the level of teacher support for these programs is to speak to teachers in the pre-service uh, training programs in, in schools of education uh, this used to be done a little bit more frequently than it is now. I don't know of any group that that now uh, nowadays goes into uh, schools of education, graduate level education courses, to talk about militarism in education and, and uh, why that's a problem. And I think when that had been done, like Rick Jonkow's group used to do that in San Diego uh, back in the 80s, they reported good results because what would happen is those teachers would then graduate, they'd get their teaching credential, having uh, heard these presentations about the military and schools and why that's an issue. And then when they get into schools, they're more uh, critical of those programs, and they're more willing to work with counter-recruiters and to, uh, to facilitate their entry into schools. So it's really a, it's a long-term strategy. And so I think that's why some sometimes activists don't uh, think immediately of doing these things, but it really does have an effect uh, yeah, positive one. Yeah, history teachers in particular need need a complete re-education and preparation for the textbooks they're going to be handed. I think. Um, sure. Another part of uh, of counter recruitment that you discuss in the book is recruitment stations and picketing and protesting at recruitment stations. Is is that part of counter recruitment? Well, the uh, there's there's crossover there, and we describe. The picketing recruiting stations is one form of a of an approach to counter recruitment that sees this activism as trying to end end a war. So you saw this in in, a, in the Iraq War, for example, when a lot of people, new people, were brought into this this movement because they had become disillusioned with traditional forms of protest. They had gone to Washington. They saw it didn't make an impact. And uh, what they what they were thinking of trying to do was to cut off the supply of troops that were would be sent to battle. And if you just talk to enough students and show them the information, uh, it would have that effect. Well, um, and then picketing recruiting stations was another way of doing that. 
but that's kind of a double-edged sword. Picketing Rick Green stations gets you some media attention. So that's an event that the media will come out and cover, and uh, maybe you can get some messages into the media, but that often stirs up a lot of reaction in, in, from conservative elements in the community. And we heard this from counter-recruiters in Texas, for example, who were really reluctant to have any kind of picket outside of a recruiting station, just because that because in that state in particular, but really all over the country, the military is the most revered institution. We all know this. Uh, and that's not to say we need to handle it with kid gloves, no. But if you want to be strategic about making gains in your community, and if you live in a conservative community, all that has to be taken into account. And I think now that the war is over, uh, or the war has died down, and and those sorts of things, I think you are not going to see as many recruiting station pickets. Which, but it's it's true. They, they were effective in closing some down. They, they closed down some stations. So. I, I, I think it's a very interesting question, as there's a couple sides to it. But let, can we back up a second to the war is over? Which war is over? Yeah, that was a... <laughs> no, I mean, it's a common yeah. delusion, but which war is over? Uh, because uh, I think for a lot of peace activists whose primary concern is, you know, the killing of human beings. And, of course, over 90% of the human beings getting killed in U.S. wars are not from the United States. They're the people who live in the country where the war is taken to. Uh, they get killed the same if you use robotic drones. They get killed the same if you arm and train proxies. They get killed the same if the U.S. troops are managing not to die in as huge numbers. Um, they still get killed the same. Uh, and... We have a president bragging about the seven nations he's bombed uh, while being given credit for having ended the wars that are over. It's a very strange situation uh, unless unless your goal isn't really I, I mean you you point out in the book that uh, I think this is a quote uh, a lot of counter recruiters are careful to suggest that the military serves a legitimate purpose. Now, this bewilders me. Why are they trying to keep people out of the military unless it's sort of uh, not in my backyard, go get your cannon fodder in the next town, but not this town? Why? Why keep people out of the military if you think the military is doing something good? Right, yeah, it's a, it's a very careful use of language. And if you look to, again, his, you know, the historical uh, perspective here is interesting because Careful meaning dishonest, meaning that they don't actually think that the military is doing something good? Well, in, in talking to a lot of these, these activists, they were, in most cases, they were upfront about saying, we're not against the military, we see there being some uh, legitimate purpose, but they thought it was too large, and they thought that it was completely inappropriate to have recruiters recruiting 17, 16-year-olds. Um, and so that's really what they're focusing on. And you have to uh, pick your battles. I mean, there are no, uh, they can't do everything, these activists. So they're sort of focusing on schools because this is an area where uh, they feel they can have the most impact. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I think it's, that's a debate that needs to be had, though, right? What, what purpose uh, does the military serve? And should we really be saying uh, that we have nothing against the military and then be doing this kind of recruitment work just that does that makes sense so but but these activists who are trying to do these long-term campaigns in many cases they are trying to bring in a coalition 
and to bring in a coalition, you've got to go and reach those who are not radicals. And uh, uh, for for better or worse, that that radical viewpoint is is, is uh, one that you're expressing. Though it, it's perceived as radical, that military doesn't serve a purpose and uh, is illegitimate, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I think the the counter recruiters have caught some flack for that. Uh, what would what would free college do for counter recruitment? I mean, it seems to me a huge number of potential recruits are looking at the college, including the dishonest uh, promises of of money for college that recruiters are handing out. What would that do, and would that be an even bigger uh, legislative victory for counter recruitment? I think it would be a huge legislative victory for counter recruitment. I think it would be interesting to see what's happening in Tennessee around enlistments. Um, I would be interested to look at the data there because, of course, as you know, they have the, they're experimenting with the free community college program there. Um, so, yeah, we all know that the, uh, the big draw for a lot of uh, new recruits, not all, but for a lot of these new recruits is money for college and uh, health benefits and insurance and all these things that would be just uh, a birthright if we lived in a society that cared for its citizens, right? Um, but you don't have that. So you have the, the military serving these, these uh, uh, kind, of a, kind of as a welfare state, and, um, uh, yeah. which I think is why when we look at the, the data on real military recruiter visits, uh, I'm seeing a, there are a lot of visits to these schools in in places where 80% of the students qualify for free or reduced price lunch, where the students are going to be more receptive to this message of help for college, financial assistance, uh, insurance, things like that. Um, so it's it's a cynical, uh, it's a sort of cynical uh, game that the recruiters play into, I believe. Yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of people are quite upset about the poverty draft, the the disproportionate focus of recruiters on those with the fewest opportunities in life, uh, to the point where, out of a question of fairness, and even out of a question of ending wars once four million people have died, uh, there are peace activists who want to bring back the draft. Uh, and there's, a, there's a court case happening around getting women on the selective service, and there's a bill in Congress around ending the draft entirely where where do you and where do you think most counter recruiters come down on the on the draft question oh i think most of them uh are not in favor of a return to the draft because most the counter recruiters we've spoken to and we spoke to over 70 doing the research for this book uh they are concerned about militarism and what what is the purer form of militarism than to say everyone needs to to uh, serve and would, would be liable to a call-up in the case of some uh, national crisis. Uh, so um, I, we didn't ask everyone about this. We had sort of a uh, pre-selected set of questions that we, we tended to go by when we were talking to these activists. But in looking at what they've written and, and talking to them uh, more informally, I, I think most of them would say against they're against the draft, and that they would want to have a uh, a smaller military footprint in society at large. Now, I, I hear that there are many people who say, well, the you wouldn't have as many wars and kind of uh, imperial aggression if 
everyone was subject to a draft. So I, I've heard those arguments, and uh, I think my my main issue, my concern with research and, and activism, has been around the recruitment uh, side of things because. Uh, that's what we have right now. So yeah, well, I'm glad you've done it. It's a wonderful book. It is a it is a how-to guide as well as a, an analysis of what's been happening uh, and what people are doing. Uh, that I would love to see more people out there doing. It's called Counter Recruitment and the Campaign to Demilitarize Public Schools. Seth Kirshner, thank you very much for the time and for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.